This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Turn to the folks who've been in the game since 1947. That's 75 years. Farm Bureau Health Plans offers the great health care coverage you need with a price tag you can afford. At the 2022 NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis, I'm Mike Keith with Amy Wells, and we are joined by Coach Dave McGinnis and Rhett Bryan for an edition of OTPQs on this Saturday. Your questions, our answers submitted at TennesseeTitans.com slash OTPQ from the OT people. From the OT people. That was really good, Mike. Amy Wells, start us off. All right. So we've got some good questions here. The first one I'm going to start with is Sam in Nashville. He asks, why did John Robinson get so emotional during his interview? Was there something else that happened that we didn't see? What was that about? I don't think there was anything else that happened. I think it's the pure, raw emotion of what I believe Titans fans all over the world and certainly in the Mid-South have been feeling since the playoff loss to the Bengals. You talk about a guy that is fully immersed in his job and what he's tasked to do And he mentioned the trust level that Amy Adams Strunk and the ownership group have placed in him to be able to do his job. He takes it very seriously. And it's evidenced by that moment that was captured. Uh, It's, you know, it just tells me how much he actually does care. And I knew he cared before, but if you ever doubted it before now, you know it now for sure. I don't think anybody, you know, I mean, look, I I felt him immediately, you know, and I, I can lean on personal experience you know when I was doing hard knocks and then Jeff Fisher lost his job in LA you know I, I did it on something that's going to be broadcast worldwide forever and got up and just you know expressed exactly how I felt about how you know we had let him down and look when you're in this you guys are in it but you're immersed in this and it's it's your it's your life and it's what you're doing and every decision that you make your family rides on it and then you do feel a responsibility I've been a head coach I know that responsibility you feel not only the ownership but to all the fans and to your assistant coach it to everybody and so I'm like Rhett that's why John Robinson if you go back and look uh, and, and Mike and you, you you know this you go back and look at his introductory press conference when he was named this means everything to him so I could I, I felt him heartfelt I'm sure there are multiple things he would have done differently or that he would have tried or guys that he would have brought in or a different 48 that he might have compiled on game day. Uh, you Just anything because that loss was so painful. So I, I think Red hit it. It was just remarkable honesty by a guy who is remarkably honest. I like it. All right, let's get to some more combine-centric questions here. This one's from Chris. And, Rhett, I'm going to send this one your way because you have kind of been the chief in charge of the podium press conferences through the past week. So I think that you'll be able to answer this. This is from Chris in Memphis, and he asks, who was the person who was in the most demand for an interview at the combine? What are your Uh, thoughts? It would have to be Kenny Pickett, the quarterback. He would be one – But any of the top stars, Chris Olave, the wide receiver from Ohio State, had a huge crowd. Evan Neal, the tackle from Alabama, huge crowd. The names that you would expect had large, large crowds. But some of the best sound bites came from the the one-offs and the the guys that aren't 
touted to go in night one. They're going to be day two and day three guys. A lot of great sound bites this week at the combine. If you're talking about a non-player, you're obviously talking about Dave McGinnis. He would be. <laughs> yes. But a close second, I think, so, a guy everybody wants to interview here is Daniel Jeremiah from NFL Network. Everybody wants to talk to him. We got to, and he was part of our Friday OTP, so we're very proud of that. Who do you think is more recognized, Daniel Jeremiah or Coach Mack? Coach Mack. He is the mayor of the combine. <laughs> I think so, too. You know, that, what that says is I'm older than Daniel nope. Jeremiah. Nope. No. Nope. And I'm so not buying that. That doesn't have anything to do <laughs> nope. with it. And so I have been here to all of them. I'm going to tell you what we should auction off for charity if we wanted to get the most money is somebody get to hang around with you during an entire combine to see what it's like to be stopped everywhere we go <laughs> by a new general manager or a new head coach or one of your former players. It's the most amazing thing. One of the nights that we went to dinner, we were finally stopped one too many times, and the, the rest of us just went on. <laughs> now, eventually, Coach joined us because we didn't want him to miss dinner, but we just realized we couldn't stand on the street forever. We were going to miss our reservation. And, Mike, the common thread in every one of those conversations we heard that week, Coach Mack helped me with this. Coach Mack gave me a shot at this. Coach Mack did this for me in almost every example. I mean, you guys are very kind, but that just means I've been around a long time. Again, I sold my cows. I ain't buying your bull. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. If you auctioned it off for charity, just whoever buys that, you should know you will not make a single meal reservation on time. You nope. will not. You will not do it. You will be hungry. Here's a question yes. for Coach Mac, okay. actually, about your experiences at the Combine. This is from Mark. Mark asks, Mac, when you were a head coach, what was your interview style like when you were interviewing these players? Were you the good cop? Were you the bad cop? Oh, I like this. Where's Mark from? Frisco. I love this. I, I, I love this. And it's a, very, it's a very relevant question because the good cop, bad cop thing is a reality. There's normally eight to ten people from your organization, from all different aspects of your organization, in that room. And these, these things are very programmed. In other words, you'd program it before you go there. And as far as, you know, say all of us were sitting there and say, okay, look, when, when this linebacker comes in, Mike, you're, you're, you're my defensive coordinator. I want you to be the good cop on him. But, Amy, you're my linebacker coach. And so when, as you play off of him, as soon as, as he accentuates something good, we're going to have a clip up here where he does something not so good, and I want you into him on it. You know, I want you into him on it. And then, and then you know, my, my chief scout over here, Ashley Farrell, then I want you to bring it back around, you know, to, to, to another aspect of it. And then, and, then, and then over here, what I want, you know, the director of, of personnel, what I want Rhett Bryan to be able to do now is to bring it back as to, you know, what's important for him to be here. So you program all of these things. And so that's what we did. And when, we, when, when you do that, then you've only got 15 minutes with them and you know the early part of it I mean you, you basically got about 13 because you got two minutes of just you know talking and introducing and doing this then depends on how much film you want to watch with them so it's not a very long time but what you can discern is really off of this if you want to bring them back for a 30 visit into your facility where now you can really dig into them is that where you have the staff psychologist evaluate them or do you also have the staff psychologist evaluate the combine interview both. 
And here's the other thing, too. Every club that I was with, Mike, of course, I've been here to every one of them. When I first started, I mean, it was the Wild West. You were grabbing them. I was a young coach there for Mike Ditka. I'd go into the hotel rooms and grab them and bring them down through the back doors. There was no – now that it's organized, what, what you do – you film these interviews, too. You film them in the room so that you have them and can bring them back. Of course, now everything goes immediately to, you know, to wherever your, your digital stuff is at your, at your facility. But, yes, I mean, you have them in there. You absolutely do, Mike. And, and then you have them as part of the process. You and Amy are part of the process when they, when they come into the, the, the facility. You know, the 30 visits. I mean, you want everybody to at least have a part of them so that you get different perspectives. The more perspectives that you have, you've got one decision maker. Our decision maker is John Robinson, but he is a gatherer of information, as we all know. And you want as much information as you can get from a lot of different perspectives. Charles in Nashville asks, aside from the interviews and the medicals, what is a drill or are there a couple drills that coaches really pay the most attention to? Well, it, it's position specific, position specific. If, if we're talking about when you got your quarterbacks, clearly you're going to watch the throws. Throws are very programmed. They've got a radar gun on their throws so they can get spin rate, those types of things. And then when you're watching receivers, you're seeing how really what you're watching is, is, is how long it takes them together to come out of the various cuts because that's important because extra steps as a receiver mean extra time to hold on the ball. Extra time hold on the ball means extra time for somebody to get to your quarterback. So you're looking at that. Then clearly you're looking to see where they can track the ball. They have different, you know, gauntlet drills they run to see just if they're hand catchers, if they're away from the body, snatch catchers. That's what you're looking at for the receivers. If, if you're looking at quarterbacks, you're looking at accuracy. You're also, you're also looking at guys that get rid of the ball because it's easy in this when you've got no nothing on you. So you put a clock on them to see if they're just waiting, waiting, waiting to get the perfect setup, perfect throw, or if they're guys that really go through actually what you want to do, you know, to get it. And again, it's very sterile, you know, being able to throw the ball defensively. Let's go to the defensive backs. You're looking at lower leg flexibility, lower body flexibility, transition ability is what you're really looking for here, which means how quick can you go from back to front, you know, and snap it off? Is is it an extra step guy? Is he a crow step guy? Is he a T-step guy? You know, all of those things that you look at and you have charts that you chart it out and look at them and plus they film everything so that you can you can look at it the 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 thing that that generates all the interest clearly is the electronic time that's what everybody can just put their mind on and their face on you know what immediately you see that guy's fast that guy's not fast but uh you know there's some really position specific things that you look at position wise that you can drill down on Speaking of those electronic times, Carol in Paducah asks, now that the workouts have been moved to the evening time slot, does that change the way that players prepare throughout the day? Yes, and that's a great question, Carol. It really does. And, you know, the, the big hullabaloo before we came to this was that they were only, they were only going to let the players have one of their entourage here to help them get prepared well you know they bring their nutritionist here they bring their stretch people here they bring their start people here they bring all of those people they've been training with and and yes it does because they have those people getting them ready and they've got a certain time frame that they get ready in to be able to perform so that's a great question it absolutely is right well it's funny jack mummert and i were walking the other day back through the corridor to go to the skywalk to our hotel and there were players coming at us. They were doing warm-ups for the 40-yard sprint in the hallway outside the convention center entrance to the hotel. So we got run over. It was bad. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, it was crazy. You got these guys it was like, 
are they waiting on us? I mean, we have to go to the hotel, and this is the way you go. But yeah, Mike, we saw the same thing. Yeah. We saw Chris yeah. Olave, the wide receiver from Ohio State, with the little mini cones right. and, and hitting it through there. And we're like, okay, might want to wait until he's done. And like, all right, now we move. Now we can yeah. go. And then, then Red hit the three cone very quickly. He did a great <laughs> to job. Get to the My sky short way. area can I, can I interrupt here with Red? I'm glad Red did the three cone because he's already set the record here a couple of years ago on the bench press. He's, he had he 44 times he, he did the, the bench and we got it on tape if anybody wants to go back in the archives and look at it. So, I mean, good job, Rhett, on the three cone. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Rhett's really killing the workouts here. Speaking of the combine, it has grown so much from when it began. Sandy in Crossville asks, how did the whole combine process start? How did the evaluation of players become what it is today? Well, that's it. I know because I was in, you know, I was here when it started. I was at the first one. The first one they ever had was at, you know, when I got into the league in 1986 was in Phoenix. It was at Sun Devil Stadium. It was outdoors. This time of year in Phoenix, you expect you're going to have great weather, monsoon. Oh, rained, no. rained it out. We had a, had a running back on, the, on, a, on a square drill blow his ACL out, okay? And so they said, we can't do this. We've got to go somewhere where it's sterile, where we can we can get we can get this done, and then I mean it took them a while to evolve into the organized event that it is now. The first year in 1986, it was the Wild West. It was it was different. It was way different. You know now that now the players wear placards where they've got their names and the times, their 15 minute segments, what rooms they're going in at the time, and you have runners that go to get them to bring them from one room to the other. It's all very organized. Back in the day. I was the youngest coach on Mike Ditka's staff. I'd go to their hotel rooms to get them. <laughs> and and if, if their roommate in their hotel room was somebody not on our list, didn't care. Bring them down and talk to him. You know, it's evolved. But it, it, it came for this. And the biggest thing that came out of it is everybody was sending their doctors and all of their medical people everywhere to get this information. And now it's, it's a centralized medical evaluation with everybody. This is, this is what's huge. This is the big, big thing about it. And then it, it gives you, a, a, since it's been here since 1987, it gives you a base to compare previous years to this year with all of the, you know, and it's not the end all to be all, but it's so organized now. It's so well organized now, and everybody knows where to go, especially if you've been going here for a while. But it came about because of the expense that was starting to generate. First draft I was ever involved in, it. we had 12 rounds in one day. And we did it on on the phone. And we'd never even seen these guys. You know, so it's a different world now. Well, Rhett, even in the last, say, 10 years, we've seen the Combine really grow and change. I mean, the amount of people who come to Indianapolis who are reporters and writers and radio and TV, everybody ascends on the city now to cover this event. I saw the report that I think it was 750 credentialed media for the 2022 combine. So that gives you an idea and it's not just teams or radio or television or it's it's a conglomeration of everything. These online sites, all of it. And yeah, it's it's really amazing what it's become and listen, Roger Goodell and the people on Park Avenue with making the NFL a year-round thing, they have really done a job in doing this again because post-pandemic now Fans are allowed in. They can see the guys do the bench press and run the 40 and do all those things, and they can see the Lombardi trophy up close and Super Bowl ring displays and do the bench press, like try to break my 44 times record there at 225. It's become an event. And, you know, again, 
it's guys in the underwear Olympics here doing their thing, getting ready before their pro days, and, and whoever takes them, hopefully they get their name called. But it's amazing to see the evolution of this. We have one final question here, and this one's from Thomas in Montana, and this has nothing to do with the combine, but I thought it was an interesting question. He says, do you think that Derrick Henry is the most marketable player in Titans Oilers history? Yes, 100%. Well, tell me why. the, The rationale is quite simply, like Eddie George, he is a Heisman Trophy winner. He is, you know, a rusher who has won back-to-back NFL rushing titles. But he's a Southeastern Conference player. He's from the state of Florida. He played at Alabama at a point in Alabama's history where they are the number one program in the country. So I think all of that and the unusual play style, the 6'3", 250, stiff arm, breaking long runs, I mean, let's face it, if you watch baseball, what do you want to see? You want to see a home run. This is a guy who can hit a home run from anywhere on the field or push you down by your face. (laughs) And so so he brings a a, a style to it that is almost like a superhero. He's like a Marvel character. So for Eddie and for Steve to have been what they were, I think he takes it to a completely different level because time and place – and where he is from and, and how he fits in. And the social media part of it right. is now a big thing. And the other thing I would say to add to Mike is he is a member of the 2,000-yard rushing club. And because of those stiff arms people have seen in primetime games and running for a 99-yard run you know, on a primetime game or whatever it is, and in those playoff games, he has become somewhat of a household name. He's a national. People in Seattle, Washington that – our Seahawks fan. They know who Derrick Henry is. Well, if the Titans get picked to go to London this year, one of the big reasons that if the Titans will be selected will be because of Derrick Henry because he is one of the league's most marketable worldwide stars. People around the world know who Derrick Henry is. Well, and Mac, when you have a guy like that, it helps boost the entire program, right? Yeah, and I can harken back to my first time overseas in a game. Uh, I went with the Bears. We went to London you know, the first uh, against the Cowboys. And the guy everybody wanted to see. Dallas Cowboys were there, right? Chicago Bears were there. Plenty of stars. But the the one that they came from, Piccadilly Circus, all the way down to Trafalgar Square, everywhere that we were, the person they wanted to see, Walter Payton. They knew Walter Payton internationally. And that's what Derrick Henry is, too. And especially now, as, as Rhett brought up, the way that the world is connected now, it's instantaneous. And he's an anomaly. He is really an anomaly, to Mike's point. I mean, it's not a scat back. You know, it's not a guy that's a sometimes guy. It's just a big dude that can run, run, that is physical, that brings an element that not everybody can bring. And so I think Mike Keith's answer was 100% correct, just like all of his answers are 100% correct. Thank you, Coach. (laughs) Hey, we've got some answers from an interesting guy, the NFL Network's Football Insider. Interesting guy by the name of Mark Ross, who had been in the front offices of the Giants, of the Eagles, of the Buffalo Bills, actually interviewed to be the Titans general manager in 2016. Impressive guy. A couple of issues we wanted to hit with him. A.B. Wells and I had a chance to visit with him earlier in the week. I think you'll be interested in some of this. Mark Ross on the OTP.
Mark, you have uh, sat in the rooms with NFL teams before when decisions are made and things happen. I want to ask about the fact that Chris Greer has come out and said the Miami Dolphins are not interested in Deshaun Watson. All right, so first of all, for the Dolphins to come up with that decision and to be willing to go public with it at the Combine, what leads to that? How does that happen? Well, this is, as you know, with the Miami and the Deshaun Watson, this has been a cloud hanging over them for a year now. And with an organization, one of the biggest things you want is stability, especially with a franchise quarterback. So they've talked about this from the ownership to the GM to the head coach, like what's our best plan? And now with a new head coach coming in there and publicly stating from day one that he loves Tua, Tua's his guy, he's going to build around him. He probably conveyed that to Chris Greer and, and, and Ross to say, look, we need to be forward-facing with this as well and eliminate the distractions of this Deshaun Watson situation. So what's best for the organization is to have that stability. And everyone know two is our guy, for better or for worse, and we're all going to rally around him and we're going to put this out there. And it's not going to be something you have to have as a distraction every day as opposed to we're just moving forward and we don't have to deal with this distraction. So for my whole career, I had Donovan McNabb in Philly and Eli Manning in, in New York, and everyone knew they were the guy. Everyone, You build your whole organization around that person and avoid all the distractions so they can thrive at their best. And that's what the Dolphins are doing now with Tua as opposed to, oh, uh, here we go. We got to talk about Deshaun every day instead of talking about what just happened in the game. All right, so part two of that question. It seemed like before the trade deadline, Miami was at least reasonably close to trading for Deshaun Watson. Amy and I have talked about it extensively. I thought the most likely team that he was still going to in this offseason was going to be Miami. So now Miami's out. Yeah. If you're in another of those rooms, uh, say you're in Houston's room right now, or you're in a team that's considering taking him, What's the market for Deshaun Watson now that the most likely team, at least to those of us who are not in the know, yeah. now that they're out, what, what goes on now? Well, from day one, I've been saying about the Deshaun Watson situation is there's a football side and then there's the legal side. From a football side, yeah. you break it down to, okay, if they want three first-round picks, okay, how many teams actually have the assets to do that? Not many. Now you've got to pay the guy. How many teams have the money to pay him? Not that many. So when you put those things together, the, the, the draft capital and the money, there may be one or two teams that actually could actually do it. Now, the other part is the legal part, where your owner has to say, we are going to take a chance on this guy despite all this hanging around. How many owners or 32 owners are going to say, you know what, I want to take on that PR nightmare of bringing this guy in without all that stuff resolved? So when you put all those factors together, that the owner has to sign off on, on taking a beating in the media every day and the, the assets there, I've been saying from day one, he's going to be in, in Houston because you just can't take on this risk despite it being talking points all the time about where he's going. The, the reality of it is there really isn't many places that he could actually go to. Let's zoom out a little bit because once you get on the other side of the NFL draft, you have all this data, you bring it back to your facility, and then free agency starts, and there's all these contract negotiations to discuss and the use of your capital, whether it be draft picks or whether it be your cap room and how much money you have. 
How do teams utilize the information that they've gathered at the combine and use that to influence some of the decisions that they are making from more of a contractual standpoint? Well, the behind the scenes that goes on at the combine is everyone sees the workouts and that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on here at this event. And then all this behind the scenes stuff, this stuff, the interview, the agents are all here and and your cap guy is meeting with agents nonstop talking about their players, other players that could be free agents. So you're just gathering information is key in Paramount and relationships as well. So would you have the information, the relationships with the agents, with the players and okay, we're building all this and you've had a plan up to this point. So you're getting here and you're just trying to fine tune a lot of what your plan, your off season plan is just as far as, okay, how are we going to attack free agency? How are we going to attack our own free agents to keep them and you piece those together, okay, now if we can solve these puzzles in the draft, we need to attack it in this sort of way. So these are all just kind of building momentum and all intertwined with one another where you're this whole situation. And the combine is just another part of that where it's just the convenience of it where everyone's here at one time and you can get this stuff done pretty efficiently and effectively. From the board, the draft board, to free agency, to what you think you want to do right when the season ends, how much actually changes? <laughs> Not much. You know, I always laugh. Someone will blow out a 40 today, like, he's moving up the draft board. You know, it's not as if you, a guy runs a fast 40 and you're on your phone with your whole staff. Hey, move him from the third round up into the first right now. It's just more so you've got that plan, and it's all about fine-tuning and massaging it and the nuances of the draft and the cap. And it, it's really that's what it is. And if you're making major swings and changes based off of – little bits of information or 140 time, you're doing it the wrong way. You have to have your plan be steadfast where everyone's together on this plan. There's always going to be dissent about it, but hey, as long as you're all doing it for your team and this is what's best for your team, that's what the optimal situation is in building it. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> I was going to sneeze. <laughs> oh, I want to talk about you a little bit and your journey from the NFL front office into broadcasting. What kind of facilitated that and how much of your front office experience are you able to use as a broadcaster? Well, that's what my role as a front office analyst, and that's what they really wanted. Everyone sees ex-players and ex-coaches out there on TV, but the NFL Network really did a good job of saying, well, okay, there's this whole other aspect that people love. They <laughs> love talking about the draft and free agency. Well, who can talk about that? It's guys that have actually done it and were in front offices running draft rooms or making decisions about salary cap. That's what they really wanted to put a premium on because there was – we think and they think that there was this this thirst for that and so yeah I've been a part of it since I was 23 years old or something so in three different teams one Super Bowl so just the things I've seen and experienced and been a part of I think there's a value to talk about that with platforms such as this so it's not easy doing media stuff is a skill it's a learned skill and you have to practice it and you have to do it and you get better at it and I think I've gotten better at it from when I first started and people just think you just go out there and talk and it's like no it's not that easy you have to practice it and learn it just like a player has to learn how to get better a coach has to learn how to get better this media situation as well because people feel like well this guy's here just do this mm -hmm. not realizing that they're dominoes in every area if you do this then you can't do this right. or you have to let go of this guy yes and some teams in some ways we're almost talking about Houston back to the original part of the conversation they're really trapped 
they don't have certain options because what's Deshaun Watson's dead cap going to mean to the Houston Texans? That's the part you're talking about explaining to people that they know what move one might be, but they don't know the resulting two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, it's just, uh, as you mentioned, since we're talking about quarterbacks, okay, what is there, eight, nine teams that think they have a great quarterback? Great. Now the rest of the NFL needs one. Like, we need a good quarterback. Okay. Where are they? Now, Now, okay, do you look at the free agents landscape? Well, is anyone better that – no. You look at the draft. Are they better than the guy we have? No. And we're talking about your guy here. We'll just use him as an example, Ryan Tannehill, for better or worse. You, you love him, don't love him. But, okay, well, who's better than him? So, as a fan, it's easy to just say, let's just get rid of this guy and move on. But as a front office person, you have to look at the entire landscape and the pieces that fall into place. Wait, how do we get that person and where is that person that's better than who we have? And then – also with the draft, where it's just trade down and go do all this and that. And the dra- all right, well, number one, you need a team that's willing to trade with you. Number two, you have to work out the compensation. That's right. Number three, okay, if you do trade down, are there players there that you can take and will they help you? So, yeah, all the little nuances and behind the scenes that it's easy for fans to just say and do. No, there's actually real moving parts to how all this works. It's more than just running fast and jumping high. There's a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's in building a team or finding a player. It's, it's all, just as I mentioned, this is the tip of the iceberg, what you see on TV. Building a team is just the tip of the iceberg, the stuff you see or hear about. It's a whole lot of other nuances to it. Good stuff. The OTP cues and Mark Ross Not on bad. a Saturday edition of the OTP. No Sunday edition. But we'll have one on Monday. No, it's the Lord's Day. So we're taking a day. We'll see you Monday. A day of rest. A day of rest. Undoubtedly. For Coach Dave McGinnis, Red Bryant, Ashley Farrell, and Jack Mumbert, I'm Mike Keith. Thanking you for listening to the OTV. Welcome to the big show where the legends go. Everybody knows it's our high.